Hello, Quickie fans, and welcome to the Kino Quickies podcast Christmas special. It's a bit like the Morecambe and Wise Christmas special, but not as popular. My name is Dominic Delaghi, and as well as this being the Christmas special, as heralded by that discordant rendition of the first Noel just now, it's also the last Kino Quickie of this season. Will there be a season three of Kino Quickies, you're asking? Well, after a long conversation with our in-house quota cookie expert, Dr. Lawrence Napper of King's College London, I can exclusively reveal that we don't know. We haven't decided yet, but if you follow us on Twitter at Kino Quickies, or if you've joined our mailing list by dropping us a line at kinoquickies at gmail.com, you will be the first to know. All of that is in the show notes too at kinoquickies.com, where you'll also be able to hear all previous episodes of the podcast. Well, the Capacity audience were in fine, festive mood on December the 18th, 2022, when we got together at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square to watch Scrooge from 1935, starring Seymour Hicks in the title role. It was only 1.30 in the afternoon when I got to my feet to introduce the film, and judging from the rowdy atmosphere, I think one or two people had already been at the eggnog. We had a lot to get through, though, including a surprise special guest, so I powered on through. Okay, hello everybody, good afternoon. Merry Christmas, etc. Have you all got your stickers, by the way? Excellent. All got your crackers? So um, we had a special request from the audience to all pull them in unison. Robin, are you alright with that? Is that... Uh, yeah, I think so. I hope this doesn't set off the fire alarms, Paul. Um... Okay. So if you're all ready to pull your crackers, this is what Christmas is all about, isn't it? Make sure you Ready? After three. Oh, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Lawrence is going to pull it with her. There we go. If anybody hasn't got a pulling partner, we can uh, sort one out for you. Okay. I'm going to count down. Three, two, one. How was that? Now you have to wear the hat. Now you have to wear the hats, yeah. Lawrence has got his hat on. Lawrence, could you stand up and show the boys and girls your nice hat? That's, uh, that's very nice. They, oh, is there glasses in there as well? Oh, my word. And these are the cheapest crackers I could find as well. So here we are, ladies and gentlemen, the last Kino Quickie. It's go- oh, yeah, it's going to be... Have you been to Panto this year? <laughs> My name's Dominic Delaghi. We have uh, our... Hooray, thank you. We have our resident quota cookie expert, Dr. Lawrence Napper. You've seen him before in his shiny head and his hat. And back there, we have uh, our special guest for today. That's Ming Ho. Ming is a screenwriter and playwright. Uh, we're talking about the film afterwards. I mean, what? it's Scrooge, you know, it's Miser... Spirit, Redemption, Tiny Tim, all that. Uh, I'm going to be as quick as I can so we can get onto the film, because we've got a lot to get through. Some people just shouted random words associated with Christmas at me now. Turk, did somebody just say turkey? I just want to tell you one thing about this film. It's, you can see it starts with Seymour Hicks. We'll be talking about Seymour Hicks later. The one thing I want to tell you about this film is, after we've, we've been together as a community, for 12 screenings now. And what if there's one thing we know about Quota Quickies is they had a very, very small budget. But we're always impressed by the ingenuity and resourcefulness of the filmmakers. When it comes to making Scrooge, 
there's obviously going to be special effects involved, which requires thought and a, a level of inventiveness. There's a scene in this that you will not have seen in other versions of Christmas Carol. So early on, you know, you know when Bob, uh, I was going to say Bob Marley then, when Jacob Marley's ghost comes to, um, <laughs> Jacob, he's a different bloke altogether. <laughs> Jacob Marley's ghost comes to see Scrooge to say, mend your ways, all that stuff. You've seen versions where, uh, like the Muppets version, it's two of them, they've got chains and all that kind of stuff, and boxes. I want you to look out for that scene in this film and be amazed and agog and see if you can figure out how they've done it. The special <laughs> effect they've used to create uh, the illusion of, uh, of Marley's ghost, it's, it's quite impressive. That's all I'm going to say because we're going to need to get into the film and there's other things to do afterwards. So, uh, as usual, we'll be showing, for those of you who don't know, we always show uh, two trailers for Talking Pictures TV because we love them. And contingent in tonight from Talking Pictures TV podcast. Um, and they, uh, they have helped us financially across two seasons now, which is very nice of them. Uh, so we're watching those. And then, little break. I think some people haven't got the paper hats on. I'm not sure, but... Uh, oh... Somebody's head was too big, split it. They're not mandatory, they're just recommended. Exactly. So we're going to watch those. There'll be a small break. There will be a small break between uh, the film and the Q&A for you to uh, charge your glasses, then we'll come back and we'll have a festive fun. God, tough crowd. <laughs> the worst. Oh, my word. The worst. Um, so uh, see you in about an hour and 20 minutes. So enjoy the film and watch out for that scene with Jacob Marley. Thank you very much. So normally at this stage of the programme, I try to make up for the fact that we can't actually watch a film in a podcast by doing a detailed plot synopsis, including clips. But I think in the case of Scrooge, that would be a bit pointless because if you don't know the story, you're probably from another planet and don't watch films or listen to podcasts. So I'm just going to quickly run through one or two observations about the film before we go back to the keynote for the Q&A with our special guest, Ming Ho. This version of Scrooge, and I'm not 100% sure why it's called Scrooge rather than A Christmas Carol, was the first ever talky version of the story and is pretty good. I know the whole point of Ebenezer Scrooge is that he's this cold-hearted old miser, but some portrayals, for example Alistair Sims' very famous 1951 version, have a comic edge to them, but this is totally lacking from Seymour Hicks' interpretation of the character. This Scrooge looks like the kind of shambling drunk with mental health problems you might avoid sitting next to on the tube. The scene early on in the film, when he's asked for a charitable donation, isn't just a boo-hiss panto-villain moment, he appears disturbed and anguished at the idea of giving money away, and he's not just irritated by Fred, his cheerful nephew, but enraged. This makes his redemption in the final act and his reconciliation with the remnants of his family all the more effective, and a moment when Fred gently places his hands on his uncle's shoulders is genuinely moving. This being a quota quickie, the running time is not much more than an hour, so the story has been abridged. The most notable omissions are chunks of Scrooge's visits to Christmas's past, we don't see Scrooge in his school days, for example, or during his time at Mr Fezziwig's, and we only see his relationship with Belle, the love of his life, in its final moments. There are, though, quite long sequences that are not part of the plot and seem to serve more as social commentary. For example, we watch hundreds of people enjoying the lavish Lord Mayor's Christmas banquet, 
There are some urchins in the street outside to whom the chef throws scraps of food. And when the assembled ladies and gentlemen sing the national anthem in the banqueting hall, the beggars in the street also stand and join in. And that special effect that I mentioned in the introduction, Jacob Marley's ghost, I'll let you into the secret. It's achieved not by any lighting tricks or double exposure or scary costumes, but by making the ghost completely invisible. Well, to us anyway. As Marley says, only Scrooge can see him. Simple, effective, cheap. I highly recommend you dig out the 1935 Julius Hagen produced version of Scrooge starring Seymour Hicks. You can see it on YouTube in terrible quality and there's even a nasty colourised version which is horrible. The best way to see it though is to purchase the renowned pictures DVD of the 1951 Alistair Sim version because our version, the quickie version, comes with it for free as a bonus feature. I'll link to that in the show notes at keynoquickies.com. But back at the Kino, the film has finished, the mics are set up, and that rabble which claims to be an audience, full of mince pies and mulled wine, have made their way back to their seats for the Q&A with our special guest, Ming Ho. Let's go back there now to find out whether or not people enjoyed the last Kino quickie of the season, 1935's Scrooge. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. Thank you for coming back. Not everybody did, actually. I noticed some people have gone, but um, <laughs> more fool them. Um, Normally, I begin by saying who enjoyed the film. Who enjoyed the film? I'll just do that. Very good. Um, and also, there are so many versions of Christmas Carol. Was there anybody here who was already familiar with this version? Nobody at all. Ooh. But you liked it. That's good. Um, so, Seymour Hicks, he had played this. Well, Ming. Yes. So, so he played many, many times, hadn't he? He did. So, I mean, basically, this this is the first sound version. So there were already, by this time, there were several versions already, um, silent versions, of which Seymour Hicks himself had already starred in and done the adaptation for one in 1913. But he'd actually been playing this role since 1901 on the stage um, when he was actually still quite a young man. So obviously, by the time he gets to this one, he is really the age for it. But he started playing it when he was only 30. And that had become his party piece, really, in the theatre. Um, but he and his wife, um, Elaline Terrace, were a very renowned couple on the Edwardian and Victorian stage, um, mostly musical comedy, um, which a lot of which he wrote and produced himself as well. So they were huge names in theatre before they started working in film. In terms of this production, this is a big, big deal, isn't it? In, in, in his career and also for Julius Hagen. Those people haven't been before. The regular people know who Julius Hagen is. He was the Quickie King, would you call him that? Yes, yeah. he would be. The, yes, I would say it's most well-known quickie, quickie producer of this period. And this film was an attempt to uh, break into more... Away from the quota quickies and into the prestige. Do you think it shows that... The, that he was trying to do that? Yes, I do. <laughs> do you, Lawrence? Yes, I do. I think it's much more lavish. Looks great. There were some quite complicated... I mean, I, I know you were making fun about the special effects um, earlier on. Only one. I think generally they're quite good. But there are some one. quite brilliant special effects. That bit where he, where he where it kind of pans out at, at people celebrating Christmas across the city and you get those first few windows with shadows in them and then it kind of moves out into the model shot... That's kind of brilliantly done. I mean, it's weird because it looks expensive. They spent more money on the sets, so there are more setups. But it, but he, he's actually still using the same kind of crusty old people. So like 
you know, the incidental music is, I mean, you know, the same music at the beginning as you get with Sweeney Todd. So it's a bit like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> so there are some bits where you're like, oh, yeah, Julius, here you are. But I think. But he had his own theme tune, Scrooge, doesn't he? Go, do dum, ba dum, ba da da. I wonder if that was a stage thing. It might be. And would this have been um, the way that Hagen used to take an existing property that's from the stage? I mean, is that, is that how he saved his money on this? Because it already exists. I think so. But it's more, it feels, it feels like a cinematic adaptation to me. I don't know if you it, 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 it is a slightly different one. And, and, I mean, interestingly, Hicks is not credited as um, having done that. There is actually a proper screenwriter credited for the scenario. Um, so, I mean, he did write the scenario for the previous version, which was much more closely based on the stage play, which wasn't written by him. Um, it was written by... Um, talk amongst yourself for a minute and I will look that up. But, but basically, I think the, the earlier version that he did was him reprising his live party piece, whereas I think this one, it, you can see that they have tried to open it out and particularly inserting the quite lavish scenes at the Lord Mayor's Banquet and um, those and some quite German expressionist moments as well, I think, with the shadows, which is quite ambitious in a way. Very much so, I think. The Ghost of uh, Christmas Future, uh, which is only a shadow of a finger, but is, it has a... Um, for the listener, Lawrence is doing finger acting. Um, when it has his face inside the shadow against the wall, that's all. I mean, I don't know how he does it. I think that's really impressive. And also, it's sort of a bit reminiscent of Magic Lantern slides. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if it is inspired by those, of which I think there are a lot of this story. I mean, it was already a popular property and something that would have been used by a Magic Lantern showman a lot. A Christmas Carol was? Yeah. Okay. So I can now tell you who wrote the stage version. It was uh, J.C. Buckstone, and it premiered at the Vaudeville Theatre in 1901. So that was the source material that, that Hicks used for the 1913 version, which was silent, and that stayed quite close to that, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Vaudeville Theatre is yeah. the very theatre where Ella Lean's father was born. So, so let's explain this connection. <laughs> Mr. Hicks, there was a there was a Mrs. Hicks, although that wasn't her actual that wasn't her professional name. Can you tell me about her? Ella Lean. Yes. Ella Lean. Terrace. Terrace. Sounds like an address in Hampstead. No, I mean basically they 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 had met in musical musical comedies and became the dominant couple who um, starred in and wrote and produced a huge number and actually became so rich that Hicks became wealthy enough to build two new theatres, <laughs> which were the Old Witch and what is now the Gielgud. So you can imagine how rich they must have been between them. Yeah. So was, you know more about what happened to big news in that they were big. Big news yeah, in the theatre world. And, and they toured in America as well. They actually played on Broadway. <laughs> so for him, this was quite a departure into a, a serious role. But I think you can see the moments where his kind of comedy background come to the fore, particularly at the end. But anyway, so Elaine's father... So yeah, Elaine comes from a, from, from a kind of theatrical family and her father was a big name, William Terrace. And the, the story goes that he had a... Uh, one of the old extras in shows that he had done in the past had fallen on hard times and applied to him for help and um, William Terrace had given him help and given him a, a role in backstage but this guy was not still not pleased with how he'd been treated and stabbed William Terrace 
at the stage door of the Vaudeville Theatre, which is just where the Nell Gwyn is now, if you're familiar with central London. Um, (laughs) uh, And and he died right there at the stage door. Yeah. And and that would have been story, wasn't it? It was all over the place. Yeah, yeah, and, and it would and have weeks. been when she was, you know, I guess in her 20s, like, she was already a rising star at that point. I think, yeah, no, notably also, both um, Hicks and, and Terrace starred in an early film called Always... Is it always ask? Always tell your wife, which you can actually see if you Google it. I think it's on. It's either on YouTube or you can view it at the Media Tech at the BFI, and that's notable because it was an early production that somebody else was directing it and got sacked by Hicks, and Alfred Hitchcock took over the direction of that. Um, so it's an interesting curiosity, and it's quite funny to see them um, in their comic persona after you've seen him in this. So I do recommend giving that a look. This. Uh production does have it's almost like a Christmas special in that it has favorites from our previous quota cookies appear in this um, so for people who weren't paying very close attention we had <laughs> Gary Marsh uh, who you might remember from Death on the Set he played Scrooge's ex's no his ex's husband who uh, comes back and says oh your ex-boyfriend is still a miserable old sod um, <laughs> Also, Eve Gray, who plays the nephew's wife, was in Death on the Set as the kind of strumpet character in the, in the upstairs room, and also the pickpocket character in The Last Journey. Donald Calthrop was in Phantom Light... So it's like it's like really is the greatest hits in this film. <laughs> can, can I say Eve Grey was also in Jury's Evidence, which um, I introduced at the BFI, invited by Joe Botting over there, um, and and that's actually a really good character for her. She plays a very hard bitten secretary um, that's the the foil to Margaret Lockwood's young ingenue in that. So you can again view that at the at the BFI, and that's a, a really good part for Eve. And you can see Seymour Hicks's silent version. 1913 silent version on YouTube and BFI. It's on the BFI player. It's on or? the B, it's on the BFI channel on YouTube, which I discovered belatedly after I had sat and watched it <laughs> in the media tech. But I think do be careful if you're looking on YouTube because there is also the American version, which comes up with a Pathé logo on, and that's a slightly um, it's cut differently. So I do recommend going and looking for the BFI B, BFI's own channel where it's got the original version there from 1913. And it's called Old Scrooge, isn't it? It's not yeah. called um, uh, Christmas Carol or, or Scrooge. Someone's got their hand up, quick, quick. Now, I was wondering, because you said he played it before and in, in silence, and this was the first sound uh, version of it. I was wondering, what was the public reaction to it at the time? Because I see it's Adolf Zucker presents with the Paramount, so it's you know it's got a better budget than... Yeah, than it's sort of, I mean, it's kind of like, it's part of Hagen's big attempt to like move out of the quota sector and move into kind of... Uh, you know, like proper film production. Actually, according to the trade papers, it was shown to President Roosevelt (laughs) on Christmas Eve. Oh, my goodness. And, I mean, I think that's part of Paramount's publicity for it in the the US. Uh, I mean, I think it probably was shown to Roosevelt. What Roosevelt made of it, nobody knows. Um, It goes, it it does get relatively good distribution, actually, if you look at some of the uh, adverts. Like, it is playing as the, as the, as the A picture against American B pictures, which is obviously completely not what you'd expect for a quota quickie. Um, but also, it is this is the moment where Hagen overreaches himself and 
goes bankrupt, partly as a result of the fact that he doesn't get the returns that he was expecting on this film. So I think it's, you know, it's relatively well received by audiences, but not enough to make right. to make the breakthrough that he was hoping that it would represent. Do you think the American thing was because the Hicks might have been, they thought it might have been better you know, known over there, as, as he said, because of his Broadway and American success. Could have been. I mean, loads of West End theatre stars toured across, you know, across in America and in, in the UK. There was like a, there was a real connection between, even in those days, between uh, Broadway and, and the West End. So I don't think that would necessarily mean that he was known or thought to be known to American audiences particularly. I just wonder sometimes, that, that with, with this story, it's such an over-familiarity with the story that you really need a Scrooge that kicks it into so like a, an overdrive I think which is why everybody enjoys the Muppets Christmas Carol because we know the story but hey let's have the Muppets and Michael Caine and hamming it up so yeah thanks actually I was intrigued about that because you're right the story is so familiar Dom you and I had a quick chat about that on the way in but it's the bits that I didn't expect. You talked about the banquet scene. It's completely extraneous. <laughs> it bears, bears no relevance to the plot, but would it be there to stretch the movie a bit? Would it be, or was it shot for something else? I don't know. Yeah, following on from that, I was going to ask the same question, whether that banquet scene, it must have cost an, an, a fortune just I, in I terms of I think that's probably existing. Along. I mean, could they just... I think they kind of tacked it on. I, I found that quite interesting because... There's some lots of the story has been ch chopped out. Like we don't go back to Scrooge's childhood at the school. Um, and there's all that stuff that, that explains why he was such an old sod because you know he was rejected by his father and all that kind of stuff. All that's gone, and yet we have people singing "God Save the Queen" yeah. and some sailors <laughs> up a up a post. Well, but there's also a set. I mean, like there's quite a lot of little inserts which you don't get in modern things, but which are in the book. So the bit with him sliding on the ice, you get quite a lot of sliding on the ice footage. That's that's a line in the book. Uh, um, the the lighthouse is a line in the book. It does exist in the in the. Well, a lot of the, the versions thing. do kind of miss out various bits and bats here and there. Yeah, yeah. And 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 again, the banquet scene when they're singing "God Save the Queen." And then it cuts to the beggars outside also singing God Save the Queen. I don't know whether that it's was ironic, making. making a political point, oh, or yeah, whether totally. it wasn't. They were saying, look, everybody loves the Queen, everybody's singing <laughs> God Save the Queen. I thought it was a sort of know-your-place kind of kind But of I guess that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. I mean, I do think there's a sense in which Christmas Carol is kind of like it's almost, it's almost more retold during Christmas nowadays than the, the Christmas story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's which a sense in up? which... <laughs> 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 there's a sense in which it's a sort of... It's like a kind of religious rite, isn't it? it mm. is a, it's a myth that you retell and you retell. Mm. And we all have our own favourite versions of it. And here's another version, which is... We, like, we're looking for the points that we know and the points that it's using that we're not familiar with are a good kind of indication of yeah. the change in attitudes. If he doesn't say... Thing. If he doesn't say things like decrease the surplus population and are there no workhouses if it doesn't say oh hang on a second in this version I don't think it says you could be a bit of undigested beef does no, it no it doesn't ah. that's outrageous that's missing that's missing well we've got, we've got another hand up over there I just want to say, I agree with you. Yes, the, the problem is it, it doesn't give the essential backstories that made Scrooge what he became. That it's in the other, it's in the Sim version, it's in the Richard Williams animated version. Uh, but the question I wanted to ask is, is the Morris Evans the later Sir Morris Evans? The Don't Welsh know. Because <laughs> I spent a long time looking for him. <laughs> I have to look that up. Do we know, I, I noticed Athene Sailor in the cast. Did anyone spot who she was? And the other thing is, in the lighthouse, was that like a nanosecond of more Marriott? And, and also, um, Graham, what's his face? It could have been the two of them, couldn't it? Because it did look like more Marriott. Yeah. Um, and I 
don't know that. I don't think he's listed if it was but, him. Um, but do we know who Athene Sailor was? She was the housekeeper. Yeah. Was she the housekeeper? Yeah. Ah, yeah. brilliant. Okay. Uh, top left-hand corner, and I think then we're going to go on to a, qu- a question about music. I don't think somebody <laughs> maybe has one. I wanted to mention Athene Sailor as well, actually, so it's quite a nice connection, because uh, she was amazing in it actually and um and this i think one of the scenes she was in with margaret yard where they go to the guy to sell his his curtains and stuff was absolutely fantastic i mean what a dramatic scene really almost there was almost a sort of frame around the whole the whole image with darkness it was really effective but i just wanted to ask about henry edwards really the director who was an actor himself a silent film star how much i mean we probably don't know but what would you think of how much of, of that expressionism and, and visual effectiveness would be down to his work? Uh, yeah, I mean, Henry Edwards is, I guess, familiar to anybody who's interested in British silent film because he was a really big star in the silent period. He worked with Cecil Hepworth, and he also became a theatre director and like did a, he had a touring company that went around, kind of quite a key figure, I guess, in, in terms of British drama. I mean, I was looking at those bits and thinking, oh, yes, Henry, you know, like he is blending silence and sound techniques and certainly that, that atmospheric lighting. I think that's him. Like, you don't get it in other Hagen films. OK, it costs money, but I think he's definitely ambitious for this film and is, is making some of those decisions, definitely, I think. Uh, so, uh, did somebody have a question about music? Was there some? Oh, the distinguished gentleman on the end there. What was your question, sir? <laughs> what can you tell me about um, W. L. Trital, the composer of this score? Well, uh, <laughs> what I can tell you is he works on every Hagen film, and. Who is it who's quite rude about him? There's somebody who's quite rude about him and says, oh, well, you know, same old music grinding out. Um, yeah, that's, that's as much as I know about Trital. Well, I know, I know that he was head of music at Twickenham, which is why he would have... Um, he was Dutch. He was William Trital, obviously. I didn't know that. Yes. Uh, you look familiar, though, yes. sir. I, can't... I, 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 I was wondering whether you'd uh, like some Christmas carols. I, I might. <laughs> I think that's a very good idea. Oh, I've just realised that it's um, Oscar-nominated composer <laughs> Gary Yershon, who's going to play us some Christmas carols. Uh, we've got a little bit of setting up to do. Can I just say for, for anybody who would like to read about the different versions of A Christmas Carol, there is a book dealing spe- uh, specifically just with that. It's by a guy called Fred Geeder, and you can find it in the BFI library, and it does discuss all of these versions um, in some detail, so I do recommend having a look at How that too. Oh, there's loads, I can't even name them, but, but they're all, uh, up until the publication of that book, they're all listed and discussed in there. Excellent. Well, thank you, Ming. Ho, ho, ho. Just in case anybody hadn't realised, that was all a fiendish setup, and we had cleverly planned for Gary to be there all along, which is why we had a piano hidden under a black cloth. As the audience chattered away, we did a bit of moving around of chairs and microphones, and then Paul, the manager of the keynote, did some jiggery-pokery with the screen, and the lyrics of the carols were projected upon it in magical Christmas fashion. The rest of the programme is all going to be that noisy Kino audience belting their hearts out, so let me do all the thank yous now before we go back there. 
Thanks, of course, to our special guest, Ming Ho, for taking part and for doing so much research. And also to our surprise special guest, Gary Yershon, who you're about to hear leading the audience in a merry festive sing-song. Thanks also to Robin the Soundman, the best paid man in showbiz, for wielding his awesome power so skillfully. And of course, our eternal gratitude is due to the keynote's very own Paul Carstairs and his team for all their support throughout this year. Have a look at the show notes for this episode at keynotequickies.com to find details about Ming and Gary, as well as links to many of the things we spoke about in the discussion, including those silent versions of A Christmas Carol and interesting nuggets about Mr. and Mrs. Seymour Hicks. Kino Quickies is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and our resident quota cookie expert is the paper Christmas hat-wearing Dr. Lawrence Napper of King's College London. And now, I'll leave you back at the keynote for that not really very surprising surprise sing-along. And until next time, bye for now, and Merry Christmas. <laughs>
repetitious, this one, isn't it? And all the angels in heaven shall sing on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day. And all the angels in heaven shall sing on Christmas Day in the morning. Then let us all rejoice again on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day. And let us all rejoice again on Christmas Day. been sitting there. <laughs> the time has come for a little hand driving. <laughs> right, but I'm only going to do minimal. Uh, on the first day of Christmas, the, the, you got a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> a partridge in a pear tree. Or a pear tree. Ready? Once more. A partridge in a pear tree. Two turtle doves. Two turtle doves. You just do it twice, only two. Two turtle doves. And a partridge in a pear tree. Okay? Three French hens. Three French hens. Three, or alternatively, three French hens. So you've got three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. How are you doing? Don't tell me, I don't want to know. Four calling birds. Four calling birds. Now try and make four flaps. Four calling birds. Three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Have you got... It is very similar to Panto, yes. Well done, good. Just going over that again. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Very good. This is the last one I'm going to give you. Five gold rings. Now, you show them off. Five gold rings. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge, or a partridge in a pear tree. Now, you may want to do the maid a milking. And how you do the geese a laying is entirely up to you. Still Christmas, my true love said to me, 
a partridge in a pear tree. Very good. On the second day of Christmas, my true love sent to me two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. On the third day of Christmas, my true love sent to me three French hens, two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. On the fourth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Looks great from here. <laughs> day of Christmas, my true love sent to me five gold rings. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Now you're on your own. On the sixth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. I can't me. wait. Six geese are laying five gold rings. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the seventh day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. Go. Seven swans are swimming, six geese are laying And a partridge in a pear tree. Milk egg. Show me that milk. Eight plates of milk, seven swans are swimming, six geese are laying, five gold rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Nearly there.
We've got like five minutes before yep. Avatar starts. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, oh, and news, news in from Qatar. Uh, still homophobic. Sorry, it's good we boycotted them. <laughs> yeah.